Welcome to Isle the Ball. I'm Tim Everett with my good friend Garrett Rance. So Garrett, we've talked about the spiritual aspect of money, you know, where uh, the importance of heart, you know, having the right heart attitude towards your money, and we've talked about tithing. So today we're going to kind of move from the philosophical to the practical and the personal about you know, how we prepare for an uncertain future, you know, particularly in regards to our finances. Uh, we've uh, bought a, a greenhouse at our church, and we're raising a crop, and we're encouraging different ones to grow food. And um, someone said that we're prepping, and and someone asked me, they said, uh, Pastor said if the Lord comes back and we don't need this food, what are you going to do with it? And I said, we're going to let the, the Methodist fight the Baptists over it, you know, if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Me and a Methodist or a Baptist doesn't get yeah. you into heaven. You got to know Christ, right? All right. Uh, right. So, and, and there are plenty of, of 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 those of us that have been guilty in the past of being uh, more uh, more loyal to being a Baptist or or Methodist than loyal to the Lord. I mean, honestly, you know, yeah, that's... just joking, Baptist and Methodist friend here, but, but you know, what, and we say we say that because we we both are. Uh, Baptist in tradition, right, and in and live in, in a Methodist neighborhood. We've got such yeah. good Methodist living all Ab- around absolutely. us. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so what, you know, what can we do, Garrett? What um, you know, we don't know the future. We know who holds the future, and we know that uh, He wants us uh, looking for Him, watching for Him, and waiting on Him, but also working. You know, working in the field. So, what is it that we can do to prepare for an uncertain future? Well, so the first thing I would tell everybody, regardless, we have scriptural reasons why you need to be prepared. And you don't have to call yourself a prepper, but you do need to be prepared. Proverbs 24, 27 says, prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. And that's the key really to all of this. Most most of us do not have a strong enough foundation to be investors. And we were forced into the investment world because of our 401ks at work or other things. So we've got to do some things to correct that. And the first thing, the most important thing that we can do is have an emergency fund. And so you've probably heard that from other people. Here's what an emergency fund is, an actual definition. This is a set of money that you have, you've set aside either in cash, your checking account, or your savings account. That's it. Not gold, not silver, not anything else. It's got to be money that you can use today to pay for something if you have to. And so what I'm talking about is, say, an insurance deductible, either on your home or your car. Or if your heating and air conditioning unit goes out and you've got to get it replaced, you've got to pay for it right now. So an emergency fund should be the higher of what a new heating and air conditioning unit should cost for your house or any of your deductibles, your health insurance included. So if, you, you know, if you've got a $25,000 deductible for your health insurance, you need to have $25,000 of money that is an emergency fund and nothing, nothing else is acceptable. This can't be money that you've got in mutual funds or anywhere else. It, it needs to be cash savings account or checking account. So that's what an emergency fund is. And we have a scriptural reason here to have it. But so before we start building our, our quote investment house, we've got to prepare our work outside and make it ready. Okay. And, and that's, so that's the first step. 
All right, first step, uh, emergency fund. What's next after that? So the, let, let me ask you quickly. Um, sure. What percent of your salary? I mean, is there so much, so many months of salary that you'd want to put back? I know. Well, you, that's you, getting you into the next question. Okay. Okay. That's good. getting into right. the next yeah. question. Okay. So yeah. I make a separation between an emergency fund and what I call a backup fund. Backup. Okay. And so that's where we get into that that three to six months of salary. Everybody's got a different comfort zone. I would say three months at an absolute minimum. Most preferably, we have we, we need twelve months. So whatever it takes to run our household for twelve months, and you know, so for a lot of people, they go, "Well, that's a big number. I can never get to that." Okay, well, you don't have to start with three months, and then as you become more and more comfortable with the idea of what you have, you work on that going forward. So three three months of your household expenses, and and it needs to include food. You know, all your insurance premiums, anything else. If you've got things that you pay annually, you need to include that in that as well. So, so for example, if you pay your homeowner's insurance on an annual basis, you need to add that amount to those three months of household expenses. Okay. Okay. Should we invest before we pay off our home? I know we have some pretty low interest rates on. So this is debatable. You can make a very valid argument in either case. Um, If you're talking specifically about our retirement accounts, you know, our 401ks or IRAs, then yes, it's okay to invest before you pay off your house because you, you were probably forced into that anyway. And if you're not contributing to your 401k where your employer is matching, then you're leaving money on the table. And I don't think that that's a responsible thing to do either. So we need to make sure that we're investing that way, even if our house isn't paid off. But now beyond that, um, I really don't recommend that people um, – work on saving other than their emergency fund, their backup fund. And then I don't think that you should be having what I would call, what we call non-qualified investments, unless your home is paid off, at least not a lot. And it's okay to start that process with small amounts of money and and, and begin learning what different types of investment products are. I think that's all um, good practices, but I would, I would highly caution against uh, really concentrating on investments until your, your home is paid off. I mean, you need to be completely out of debt, have no car note, no house note, um, no medical bills or anything before you really consider yourself an investor. And that does, that now that does exclude your 401k and your IRAs that you've already had. Okay. I grew up in a church owned home, you know, we called it a parsonage. And so during the sixties, seventies and eighties, my parents lived in a parsonage at a time when houses were really um, growing, you know, in terms of, of, of their worth. And so basically they got near the end of their life and they didn't have the investment of a house. Uh, they had to, to buy their first house when they were in their, their 50s or, you know, whatnot. So how good today do you think a, a house is, your home is an, is an investment? So there's, we talk about the three rules of real estate, location, location, location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we use our, our example, mine and your example here in Spring Hill, um, our, our house is not a good investment. We're going to be doing good uh, to get out of it what we put into it in terms of, you know, investment potential. So you buy a house here and then if you keep it updated and you spend some money along the way, um, painting walls, you know, upgrading the granite countertops, you know, whatever, you're going to be doing good to get your money back out of it. So Spring Hill is not a good location. Are we for, typical or how would we compare across I, the country? Well, you know, there's, 
we're probably 50, 50, you know, and, and everywhere that's economically depressed, which honestly, we're talking about most small towns here. Um, if you're talking about small towns that are below the threshold of growth, then, um, homes are not a great investment. Now, I'm not saying don't invest and I'm not, certainly not saying don't buy a home because there are other factors that contribute to this. But if you're looking at it as the most important investment that you have is your house, then we're really being sold something that doesn't hold true with everyone. And um, even even my house that I bought in Shreveport and then turned around and sold it, I didn't get out of it what I put into it. And that was, that was in an area that was not nearly as economically stifled as, as Spring Hill is. So a house is not the best investment for sure. And I, I, I love to quote this example. My grandparents in Southern California, in Riverside, um, where there's been huge economic booms over the, the last many decades. It's, tur- it's turned around now, but they bought their home in 1960, uh, I think for $20,000. They sold it in 2004, uh, I believe for $275,000. And it, it sounds like a lot of money. That was a 7% rate of return. And that doesn't account for any improvements that they made to the home. And so to, to think that our house is going to be our most valuable investment and our, our most appreciated investment going forward is, is, is not a good assumption. So when we decide whether or not we're going to be purchasing a home, it depends how long are you going to be in that area. Um, I mean, if it's your lifelong home and you have no intentions of leaving and you don't and you're financially stable where your job's not going to move you, then buying a home makes sense. Honestly, for, for somebody in ministry right now, I could make an argument either way. Um, you're probably not going to be there for a lifetime. If you're moving to an area that is uh, booming economically, certainly buying a home is a good idea. But if you're moving to an area that's struggling, um, yeah, you might even consider renting. And, I, and I, you know, I say that because I've always been anti-rent, but it really could make more sense than owning an asset there and having it tied up. And, and even here, you know, when you try to sell a house in our town, it, it may sell in one day. It may, it may not sell for two years, you know. And so then you've got uh, potentially two assets that you're having to purchase if you don't have the money for it and, and pay notes and pay interest on. And so it can really work against you. Um, and I, I would also say this. Um, this, was, this advice was given to me by the banker who gave me my first home loan. He said, I would rather own the smallest house on the street than the largest. Because that's, you know, that's yeah. typically right. going to be the, the easiest one to sell. And I think that, that there's certainly a lot of truth to that, a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, I wonder about these home buying shows that we see on television where a young couple has a $500,000 budget and they buy a house in a hot area and the house doesn't look any better than ours. You know, you know ours would sell for half, you know, of what they're buying one for. I wonder if this gives Americans a false sense of, Sure it does. And I would, I would tell people this, anytime um, somebody is peddling their, their great wisdom in real estate, they're making more money off of that great wisdom than they are off the actual real estate. And uh, they're not helping you out of the goodness of their heart. They're making a lot of money off of your fees to listen to their, their programs or watch their videos or buy their books or whatever. So um, you, you're probably going to get better advice from, um, a banker that does that does the home loans in that area or a good real estate agent that's been doing it for a very long time and isn't as concerned about flipping houses or teaching you how to flip houses. So um, 
I, I do think that real estate is a good investment if you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it, and it kind of goes back to that location, location, location. And then I would also say price, 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 you know, what you pay for it. Right. Um, Cause you can easily overpay for a, a, an asset there. Is your house the biggest investment mistake we typically make or are there other mistakes that you think that may compete? So I think right now, the biggest overall, the biggest mistake that people make is not being prepared. They don't have an emergency fund. They don't have a backup fund. And then they start investing. And then they're putting their money into something like an IRA that's got early withdrawal penalties. And then they get in trouble. And then they have to take money out of their IRA and pay not only tax, but the 10% penalty. And it's because they were never prepared to begin with. And so that's the that's what I consider the biggest mistake. Now, we as Christians are making an a different type of mistake. And that is we as Christians are putting our money into things that don't line up with scripture. And this movement that I'm proud to be a part of is is called biblically responsible investing. And that's making sure that our investments, we don't contribute or profit from things like abortion um, or pornography. And so we're, we're using selective investments to put our money where our mouth is. And so I think that's the biggest mistake that Christians have, have been making and are still making today is not being part of the biblically responsible investment movement. Right. We make a lot of emotional decisions when it comes to our money. I think about greed on one hand and fear, you know, maybe on the other. Um, explain that to us. So, the, so the, yeah, know, that's the two emotions. Deci- yeah. And, that's the two emotions that drive our financial decisions. So on the the one hand, we have individuals that are scared to death of everything. They're scared of investing altogether. Um, they're they're scared of trusting anybody, and um, there there are some legitimate concerns there, especially when it comes to individuals. If you don't know them well, I would say this: somebody that's going to call you and not leave you alone, you need to be very wary of. Um, you need recommendations from um, either your pastor or a a neighbor that you know is a good brother and sister in Christ that makes good financial decisions, and and not just in terms of how much money they make, but that they're using their money to honor and glorify the Lord. And so these two emotions, greed and fear, this is what typically drives everyone. So we have that fear on one side, and then we have the greed on the other, which is we want to make as much money as we can as fast as we can. And both of these decisions cause... Um, what I would consider premature entry and exit into investing. And so we, we've got individuals, we've got a whole set of individuals, a whole generation that have become traders and their, their trading has come through platforms like Robinhood and, and various others. And they are operating under the greed concept that they're going to put a little bit of money in and they're going to get extremely wealthy off of it. And so they're they're ignoring some basic components of, of financial structure here, like you know price-to-earnings ratios. Um, they're getting heavily involved with options, and they're, they're, they're trading options that are what we call naked options, which means they don't own the asset. See, the purpose of options to begin with was to help us insure ourselves against um, in investments that we had. So, you know, if we owned a, a particular stock, we may trade some options on it in order to protect ourselves from total loss. And that was the, 
the whole concept of, of having these derivatives, these options. And so what we've got now is we've got a generation of traders who are operating under greed and they don't own the underlying asset, but they're trading the options anyway. And we, we see an example of an individual that committed suicide not that long ago because he woke up one morning and he looked at his account and it was negative $800,000. And he knew that he would never be able to in his lifetime earn that kind of money. And he committed suicide. And it's, yeah. it's, it's really sad to think that greed can drive people to make those kinds of decisions. And, it, and it's also outside the investment world as well. I mean, we see uh, people that get caught up in all kinds of uh, Ponzi schemes of, of various kinds where uh, maybe the Iraqi dinar or, or these other things that have gone around uh, or uh, maybe even pyramid marketing schemes where you know people are promised that if they peddle certain products, they're going to become rich and they're going to have you know 10 employees in, in a year and yeah. these sorts of things. They operate out of greed and not out of rational decision-making. And so um, that's what those two emotions can do. And, and, and in order for us to be responsible, we've got to remove greed and fear because neither of those are, are scriptural. Neither of those are attitudes that are godly. And um, our attitude has to come from God owns it all. He's put me in charge of, of this, whatever this is, whether it's not much or a whole lot. And my job is to be a good steward of that. Yeah, it seems like money is the new taboo subject. You know, used to you didn't talk about sex, and now people are reluctant to get advice on money. It's funny how we just keep our money issues to ourselves and, and not, um, you know, get the advice others off. Now, you mentioned trading. Um, a friend of mine was a day trader, and he talked about how obsessed he became. He said, I would get up in the middle of the night, check on the markets in Asia, and just spent, you know, his whole day in front of the computer and, um What's the difference between a, a trader and an investor? Well, a trader is somebody who's got a short-term outlook, for the most okay. part. They're 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 operating under, I want to make my profit and get out. They don't ever talk about making you know having a loss and getting out, but that's that's part of being a trader as well. And so, a trader is somebody who is looking for a short-term solution. An investor is someone who understands that everything is going to be long-term that we're not putting this money away for tomorrow. We're putting this money away for 10 years or more down the road. And so we, we, we talk about being an investor for our retirement, for our children's education, um, and leaving a legacy to our church, uh, those sorts of things. That's what being an investor is. And being a trader, anybody can be a trader, but not everybody can be an investor. And in, being an investor takes discipline, it takes knowledge, and it takes interaction. You're never going to become a real investor if you only trust your money to somebody and you leave it alone. Mm-hmm. You're putting your, your faith and trust in another person, and that's not the way God intended it. Wow. God intended for you to be a part of it. He tells us to look well into what we do and to not be naive. And uh, that's a proverb. I don't have it in front of me. I don't, I don't know where that's at, but that's... Um, that we should look well into matters and, and uh, you know, that a foolish man is naive. And so I'm never recommending to anyone to choose an investment advisor um, where they just place total trust in them and they have no idea what that individual is doing. Um, you know, I would, I, going back to some of the mistakes, you know, one of the other things that I would say is a, is a big mistake is people not giving investments enough time. I mean, if you're investing right now, and you put your money in and it goes down and you don't give it enough time to recover, then you sell low and you lock in your losses. 
So that's another mistake. And then I would say the the next in in the list of mistakes, the next one would be uh, tying your money up too long. We have a whole set of um, I, I, I hesitate to even use the word investment professionals because they're not. Um, they are paid. Um, so they do fit the definition of an investment professional, uh, individuals that peddle products that appeal to a person's greed and fear, fear being a very powerful one as well. So they'll tell people, well, you're going to be an investor, but you can never lose money. All you got to do is put it in this annuity for 20 years and you'll go up when the market goes up, but you'll never go down. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a problem with the product in itself. What I have a problem with is the way that they're marketed and and what's being taught and who they're appealing to. Um, I would never recommend to anyone to tie your money up for, you know, five years would be okay. I mean, I could make an argument for somebody that might do seven to 10, but anything beyond that is, is really ridiculous. Um, and, and there again, it, it, it depends on what we're talking about. There are some instances where something like that would potentially fit, but um, it's not a solution for all of someone's money, and it's certainly not a solution for every individual. And so we have all of these mistakes that we make out of greed and fear. And uh, it's really sad to see as an investment professional that wants to do things the right way and, and help people be good stewards, and then they get duped in by someone that appeals to one of those emotions. Well, the shoe's been on the other foot, <laughs> Garrett, to tell you. You know, people come out after hearing me preach and say, you stepped on my toes, and you really stepped on, on mine today. I relate to a lot of these mistakes that you've mentioned, and and uh, I see my own fall in nature when it comes to, to greed and when it comes to fear that, you know, I have a tendency to let drive my decisions, you know, financially and otherwise. So what you know, we have fallen natures, and, and we do have a tendency to – to let emotions rule the day. So what, what's your advice for us in combating, you know, these, uh, these emotions of nature, you know, that. Yeah. So first and foremost, it's, it's being honest with ourselves about the fact that we're, we're, we also come to these, um, relying on God, you know, we've got to repent. We've got to repent and say, God, I've messed up. Um, you know, greed has driven me. Fear has driven me. I don't want that to be the case anymore. I want to make rational decisions. And we we look to Scripture. We've got 2,300 Bible verses about money and wealth and how we're to treat it. And I think that if we're not if we're not looking into those, then we can't make informed decisions about what God wants us to do with our money. So we've got to become familiar with them. Even if you're an individual like me that I'm, I'm terrible at uh, memorization, I make lists and I write them down. And I and, and Pastor Tim can vouch for this. I have a hard time finding all of my notes. I'm not an organized person, you know, when it comes to my, my notes with Scripture. Um, but I but I know the heart of the matter, which is what God is getting us to, and that's that's where He wants us to be is to understand that we've got a heart problem when it comes to our money, and th- that's the problem with all of these. None of none of the problems that we talked about are really the problem. It's our love of money. And we talked about that in a previous podcast. So we've got to understand that this is our nature, that we are fallen. These are the emotions that by nature drive us in our financial decisions. And then we have to rely on scripture and the Holy Spirit to bring us up out of that. 
and um, and relying on anyone else is out of the question. You cannot rely on your financial advisor to get things right for you. You have to rely on God and Scripture and your repentance to get things set right. And then I would say, you know, obviously seek an individual that you know whose heart's in the right place. Amen. Thank you, Garrett. Very helpful to me today. Thank you for sharing this. And uh, thank you for listening to Eye on the Ball. We're not a baseball show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as you, as you figured out by now, surely, you know, we're not, we don't have anything to do with sports. I was reading this morning um, from Ephesians chapter 5. It says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, you know, that's the purpose of this program is to enlighten you, to shed some light on some issues. Uh, we're trying to keep our eye on the ball, and ultimately the, our ball is Jesus. Amen. And, um, and then the issues that come up. So hopefully this has been helpful to you today. It has been to me. God bless you. Thank you for listening in. Amen.